It's not just the one place. <laughs> I have pain here. In my famous ass. It's not that bad, is it? Well, you can hear them, and you can you can see them a little bit. I mean, you know, fortunately, you know, you, you learn to play the ball. But I'm not going to say it was a, a total distraction, but it is a little annoying, maybe. No, I shouldn't have to change for any other circumstance. I like my hair. It's just things flying in the air that you're not supposed to be seeing. It's not that bad, is it? Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 68 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. The Australian Open is over. Sadly. I'm happy. I'm looking forward to getting back some normalcy in my life. Like, yeah. This tournament wreaked havoc, especially in the last week. Well, I was sick with one of the worst colds I've ever had. I'm finally on the other side, I think, and I think I've given you. Right. I've contaminated you with the cold. And honestly, if anyone could make it through this tournament without getting sick, I commend you. Because the hours, if you're in North America, is just crazy. Okay, for both finals, we took a nap. We went to bed, like, way earlier than normal on Friday and Saturday night. Took a nap and then woke up for the final and then went back to bed or tried to. To then go to work. Yeah. I had a work meeting at 9 a.m. on Saturday, so I slept for like an hour and a half after the final, and then went to the meeting, and then worked all day. So that was fun. But honestly, it was all worth it. What more could you have asked from this tournament? Well, I know what you could have asked. Yeah, because I felt that exact same way until the finals happened, and I didn't get either Venus or Rafa. Yeah. I thought for sure I'd get one of them. You know, I wasn't greedy. I didn't want both. Neither of them I expected to be there, right? So that mm-hmm. that in itself was great. But then you get to it and you're like, can I just have one? One. Like I thought at varying points that maybe I'd never see either of them win again. And then to get the opportunity to have both of them win on the same weekend mm-hmm. and then have neither win, it was, I, needed a, a, I needed 48 hours to get my right. mind... <laughs> <laughs> back to a rational state to really fully appreciate mm-hmm. it. When we were recording our last episode, everyone was talking about these fantasy final matchups. And I I was really reticent to kind of predict or hope for anything because I thought it was too good to be true for both of those to come true. And both Roger and Rafa had big, big obstacles in order to get to those finals. And I didn't really want to predict either of them to get there. I thought if Serena got through Joanna Conta, then we were home free. Well, you thought Serena's going to win, period. I always do. <laughs> but but even if Pliskova had made it to the semis and Serena would face her, I thought if Serena conquered Conta, then we were in really good position to win the tournament, regardless of who she met in the final. The the real Loki hero here of the tournament is Coco Vandeweghe, because she got um, excuse <laughs> listen, you listen she got rid of Kerber she mm-hmm. got rid of Muguruza which then got Venus to the final right. let's be real but but look at the form they were in she bageled Muguruza in the second set she knocked out Kerber two and three who's to say that Venus couldn't have beaten them in the form that they were coming in with she could have but. Kerber is a type of counterpunching player that would give Venus much more of a problem than a Muguruza or a Vandewey, right? True, yeah. So th- I, I felt that if, if Kerber got to that semifinal, then it was going to be Kerber in that final against Venus. That's just also been the history of their matchup as well. Mm. So let's start with the, the women's final then, since we're talking about, about this right now. Let's. The match itself wasn't nearly as bad as a lot of people were saying it was. Well, were they saying it was bad or just not exciting? People come into the Williams matchup with an idea that it's not going to be great tennis. And very rarely has it been great tennis, but that doesn't mean it's not good. I feel like people aren't able to look at it as good tennis because they expect so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was great tennis... In 2003, their final was an absolute classic, where Serena clinched the Serena Slam. Mm -hmm. This final 
was not bad. It was okay. Right. It just wasn't bad. It wasn't a classic. Um, you could see Venus out there fighting. You could see moments where she could have swung the match, could have taken a set, and she tried her damnedest, and uh, it's not for lack of aggression. Let's put it that way. Venus playing Serena puts into perspective just how great Serena is. Because Serena doesn't even have to play her best to win against pretty much everybody, and that includes Venus. Mm -hmm. But Venus can, even when she's not playing well, can raise her level to face Serena. This tournament wasn't the case because her level was so high already. But the thing is, Serena at this stage, whoever she faces, even if it's Venus, it's another opponent who is very likely to lose. We've seen that she hasn't done that in recent years. Like mm -hmm. It's not a foregone conclusion, right? But even those matches where Serena lost against Kerber last year and Muguruza, the French, you could make the argument that Muguruza won that handily. But still, Serena not at her best is still a big challenge for everybody else, right? right? People who beat her in those, in those moments have to play the matches of their lives, essentially. We needed to see the Venus who showed up against Duan in the third round to play in that final. Right. That's what, that's what Venus needed to do, and she just wasn't as crisp. She was pressing. Playing Serena makes yeah. you press and go for shots that you wouldn't normally go for. And in the beginning of the match, Serena looked nervous. Venus looked a little tight. They traded, I think, four breaks to start the match. Serena, I think, accidentally cracked a racket in half. Did you see that? That was just sort of, I think, how it landed. Be she didn't seem to hit it that hard. No. Uh, but she was tight. She was a little bit nervy. And toward the beginning of the match, I was thinking Venus could definitely get a set here. I didn't think that Serena was going to lose that match, but uh, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was very, very tight. And the 6-4, 6-4 scoreline was, it was actually closer than it appeared, I think. It was a lot better tennis in the second set, for sure. Yeah. And I thought that perhaps we'd get a situation not unlike Montreal in 2014, where Serena won the first set and then Venus the second handily, mm -hmm. and then went on to win the match. That was what I was hoping for at that point, right. because Venus was looking a lot more assured in that second set until she got broken. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird match to watch in our household, obviously. We were both very subdued. It was almost like two William sisters watching themselves. We didn't talk. <laughs> we, we barely talked to each other during that match. No, and you know, I don't think I told you at the time, but of course I was happy that Serena won. I was happy that a William sister won this major, but it was hard to be super, super excited. I think I would have been much more emotional had Venus actually won the title. I think this is the first, this is kind of a, a breaking point for you because <laughs> you've never had this heightened conflict within yourself with both sisters. No. In the past, it's always been like, that's cute, Venus. What? <laughs> All right, we're going to need you to stand down now. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, I've always been very pro-Venus in these matches and by extension, rooting for Serena to lose. Mm -hmm. And that kind of corrected itself as well for me in the final. So we're both kind of meeting in the middle. Right. I mean, in 2009, when Serena beat Venus in the Wimbledon final, there there was no equivocation for me. I needed Serena to win that match. But it's different now. These women are 35 and 36 years old. You get the feeling that Venus has far fewer chances than Serena does moving forward. So, I don't know, it was hard to be overjoyed in the moment it also came off the back of venus doing god's work in the semi-final and beating oh my lord coco vandemort colleen <laughs> <laughs> and that celebration on court after she won when she realized she'd made a grand slam final again mm -hmm. like it that was... is that is real and she thought she was holding back she explained afterward her body her body was literally trembling with excitement and joy. Like, there's just no faking what Venus does. We talked previously about the turbo twirl. Uh, that turbo was a sped up 
turned all the way up <laughs> in that semifinal. I thought she was going to twirl her way off the court. <laughs> Let's talk about Colleen and Venus. Because, God, there were so many matches during this tournament where I was literally sick to my stomach. There was not a second in that semifinal that I relaxed. No. Ne- not until the last point. And it was a really good match. It was one of the matches of the tournament. It was. So, Coco wins the first set tiebreak. Venus fans have been tortured by tiebreaks in recent years. I know this because I live with one. She's been better. She came into that match 2-0 on the tournament in tiebreaks. And in recent months, or I guess the last year, her record in tiebreaks have been better. As has yes. been the case with her playing general, relative to this this notion of Venus being somebody who breaks your heart in these tense matches, mm-hmm. right? So I wasn't that nervous in the tiebreak, but then it just went awry. But to start the second set, she broke right away, and she she went out to a lead in the second set and was basically proclaiming that, hell no, this is not happening. I'm at least going to win this set. <laughs> And she held right till the end. She saved umpteen breakpoints. She would not lose serve. Right. Some of those second serves she hit, crazy. And normally when you break that early, I'm thinking, oh, the break is too early to hold on to for the whole set, as we saw in the mm-hmm. men's final mm-hmm. in the fifth set. But man, Venus was steely as hell. And you're absolutely right. That second serve was working for her. It was very aggressive because it had to be. Because Coco, here's the thing about Coco, and I'm not a, a technician of tennis, but I don't know. I don't know if I've seen a player who has more mishits, more whiffs, just like total breakdowns of technique on on just one shot. And then the next point will be pristine. Like a player at her level, it's strange to me how many mishits she has but the thing is when everything is clicking with coco it's like pure power it's just dominance which is why she was able to blow kerber and muguruth off the court right it wasn't that the two of them were playing poorly coco was really playing that well Mm -hmm. and she brought that level for the most part against venus but venus brought her level as well and she could match coco for the most part in the power department right And where that difference between the two could have been a a detriment to Venus would have been with the serve. Because that's what we heard all along. That Coco has one of the best serves Mm -hmm. in the game. And we know that Venus's serve has been a liability, especially the second serve. But Venus came to play in that semifinal. And her serve was an asset from the second set onward. She came to what, bitch? (laughs) Should we talk about uh, Uncle Kiki's interview? During that match. Oh my god. Because this is something that got me turned up. I was so mad. We we were beside ourselves. We could uh, not believe it. Okay. This was after the ESPN team had pretty much picked Coco by and large to win the match. Oh yeah. At gleefully. Yeah, I think Co- Chrissy was actually the only one who said that she expected Venus to win because of her experience. And I suppose not without warrant because of the two previous wins. Right, right. Everybody seemed to think that Coco was going to win that match. And tied into that is this whole, the whole Great White Hope narrative of getting the next American player to come and unseat the Williams sisters, Mm -hmm. right? I don't remember at what point it was in the match, but Chrissy and Chris Fowler took a call on the air with Coco Vandeweghe's uncle. No, I think it was the start of the second set. That's when Venus broke. Yes, you're right, you're right. They were talking through basically venus resting the match away from coco (laughs) it turned out to be a wonderful turn of events it did uh but so kiki vanway is what uh, he used to be in the nba or something nba player now an nba executive used to be an executive with the denver nuggets now works for the nba itself as a high level executive the grandfather was an nba player as well Mm -hmm. and the grandma was miss america or some bullshit like that the mother was a double olympian or something yeah so there is pedigree in this family. Now, I understand that they do interviews during play sometimes. We've seen it in the stands. You know, we've seen like ESPN's courtside reporter do it in the stands. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've taken calls before. But listen, this is a Grand Slam semifinal. It's weird. 
And this is Venus Williams. Like, if you're in the final and you're getting Richard or Oracine on the phone to answer a few questions about both their daughters, I'll accept that. <laughs> right. But, like, this, set, this felt like such a disservice to Venus. It really, really was. And Chrissy, in the past, has shown how enamored of wealth and privilege she is because clearly these commentators see themselves in the Vandaway family more than they see themselves in the Williams family, right? Like, that's without question. Mm -hmm. So the kind of the excitement of having a young American woman with such pedigree, with an interesting story, a famous family, that's too much for them to overcome. Like, they won't, will not pass that up. It was just, it came off as disrespectful from my perspective. When the competing narrative in that match is so much greater... Venus Williams getting back to the final after 14 years in Australia and eight years since Wimbledon, the last time she made mm -hmm. a Grand Slam final. After everything she'd been through, that was such a great narrative in itself. They're always looking for right. these narratives. Like, like that, that was the one. You don't need to create that. You were gifted the greatest narrative of all. Mm. And you chose to call fucking Kiki Vandaway <laughs> in the middle of this match. Like, come on. Meanwhile, how many times during that match did both commentators allude to the fact that Coco is not well-liked on tour? <laughs> they, no, but they really did. Yeah. And they said it in very murky and creative ways that she has, you know, uh, I don't know, a different personality. But they were implying that she's not very popular. Venus wins the second set. And then the narrative shift happens. It's like they finally see the writing on the wall, and then we start hearing about Venus and what's at stake. I'm like, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are totally useless. But as far as Colleen's run, she beat Vinci, Bouchard, Kerber, Muguruza before playing Venus. There was somebody else in there along the way. Mm. I, I don't quite remember. So that was a brilliant run for her. She's up to number 20 in the world. Which is a career high. Previously, she'd only had standout results on grass. Now she's translating that to hard courts. Mm. Her coach, who you, if, you, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that we're not big fans of either of them, Coco or Craig Carden. Carden is the one who, incidentally, while Coco was playing Venus, I believe, told her, quit being such a pansy mm -hmm. or something like that. And... It came as such a huge surprise to me then that I found out that Cardin used to coach Martina Navratilova. Right. Like, how does that gel up? It doesn't matter to people like that, obviously. That kind of homophobic language just doesn't register as homophobic. The jock speak? Yeah. One of the things I wanted to make sure I talked about with respect to Venus on this episode, and it's something I may be writing about in the next few days, is that it's, it's time for us to listen to Venus and stop thinking of her as just a ceremonial player. Because time and time again, over the course of the last two years especially, but even before then, when Venus was struggling, she would tell us, I show up to play, I show up to win. Mm -hmm. And people were like, oh, that's so cute, that's so inspiring. Oh my god, you've, you've overcome so much. Like, Venus, like, how does it feel to get this big win? Like, <laughs> girl, aren't you surprised? And Venus is like, uh, no. And we saw it from the start of this tournament in that very first on-court interview when the famous girl, I don't know, with Sam Smith on court, when she then went on to say, you know, you know, Sam, I like to think I know how to play tennis, right? Like mm -hmm. Venus has supreme belief in her ability. And I get the feeling that we, myself included, I've been guilty of it. The press, the fans haven't taken her seriously. And it's been reflected in the way we craft these like fairy tale narratives around Venus. So she doesn't see herself as that. And so after now being the only player outside of Serena to make the fourth round of the last four slams, after having made the quarterfinals in Australia two years ago, making the French Open fourth round last year, then the semis at Wimbledon, the fourth round at the US Open, winning a handful of tournaments outside of the slams as well, winning Wuhan, then winning Zhuhai in 2015, 
making the Stanford final last year, winning Auckland in 2015. Like she's had, now we can look back, a cluster of really top results. And it's reflected in her ranking. Like she's 36, turning 37, back on the cusp of making the top 10 again Mm -hmm. at number 11. We need to, to, to put, put that image of her to rest. Yeah, actually, if she wins two matches in St. Petersburg, which, defying all the odds, she has arrived I, yeah. in Russia, uh, she will be top 10 if she wins two matches, She'd according have, to my math. Yeah, she would have supplanted Kanta at number mm-hmm. 10. And if she wins the tournament, she'll be up to number 8 or 9. I think, you know, we expect so much of Venus. Because, listen, she has had to go from being the story in tennis in the late 90s to accepting that her younger sister is better and is the best ever not just the better williams sister she's the best woman to ever pick up this racket and so she's accepted that with grace and more than you could ask of any person and now people expect her to be okay with not winning anything You know, she's not okay with that. She knows what it feels like to win Wimbledon five times and beat all comers, beat the best of her generation. And for a a long time, she was better on grass than Serena was. Right. Even even when Serena was had won her Serena slam was asserting herself as the better Williams sister. You know, people talked about her in 2008 as the greatest, one of the greatest grass court players in history. And that was putting her in a level higher than Serena at that point. That was her trump card. Mm. That no matter where she played and lost against Serena, they weren't even footing at the very least at Wimbledon. And even that went away. She had the Sjogren syndrome. She had all these other obstacles put in the way of her winning and being a top tennis player. And she's fought her way back from that. And so now she's here. She's back. And she's determined to not go anywhere. when, When Serena beats Venus in that final... Yes, Venus is happy for Serena, but she's not happy that she lost. And she's not happy with just having that runner-up trophy. She still wants and believes that she can win the tournament. And so when you ask her in press, are you surprised that you got back here? Are you happy with the result that you had? Like, no, <laughs> she's <laughs> she's not. And we should stop being surprised by her results at this point. Mm-hmm. Because she's going to do things and go places that we just can't conceive of. Now, speaking of the GOAT, of course, Serena passed Steffi Graf to get to number 23, and the GOAT talk reignited. New obstacles were thrown in her path. The bar was set higher than it's ever been because all of a sudden, Margaret Court's record is relevant. It wasn't relevant when Steffi Graf was reaching 22, she didn't even try to to get to Margaret Court's record. But now, Serena has to pass Margaret Court to be considered the GOAT, according to some people. And, listen, now they're already laying the groundwork for when she does pass Court that it will still be illegitimate. What are they saying? Oh, well, Margaret Court is saying, well, regardless, I it was much harder in my era to win I will still have my all-time slam record of 64 doubles, mixed, and singles. No one's going to supplant that. That's true. And that players these days have entourages, nutritionists, doctors, all these different support systems that allow them to perform at this peak level. But if you're taking Margaret's logic, if all of the players are receiving that sort of support and are performing at their peak level, isn't it even more difficult? to succeed it's nonsensical what she's saying is is nonsensical the thing is she's laying the groundwork to delegitimize serena's achievements even before they happen so many of her slams were won before the open era a lot of those australian tournaments in the 60s had 32 player draws a lot of them didn't have the top players traveling to go play them pre-open era they're almost exclusively australian players Mm -hmm. and in those early 70s events so many of the top players didn't even travel to australia like the tournament just did not have the prestige that it has now so margaret court was a hell of an athlete 
it doesn't help our case to be denigrating Margaret Court's ability because you don't win 64 Grand Slam titles by accident. She was the supreme athlete of her time in tennis. She was highly professional. She beat Billie Jean King many, many times. But the thing is, how do you compare these eras? And how do you tell people in 2017 that your, what, seven Australian Open titles before the Open era are more legitimate than Serena's? It's ridiculous. And now, someone I've always loved and respected, Ivan Gulagong, has come out in support of Margaret, saying in an op-ed recently that she has the utmost admiration for Margaret Court, and she thinks that her legend is safe, basically. That she agrees that it was more difficult way back then, that we shouldn't take away what Margaret Court did, blah blah blah. So that was disappointing. It's not... It's... It's just such a boring, boring topic for me because Margaret wants to talk about how difficult it was for her back then. Did she have being a black woman in America as part of her struggle during her professional career? Like there's so many et cetera's that come along with being Serena Williams that she didn't have back then. You know what she also didn't have? She didn't fight for the Women's Tennis Association. She didn't give a single fuck about women earning equal prize money being respected on the same level as men she just want to go out and play tennis which is fine that's that was her prerogative but she wasn't slumming that is it. a black mark for me on margaret court she wasn't slumming it with billy jean and chrissy everett in the early days of the wta right because that that was not pretty times to be a professional mm-hmm. woman woman's player ultimately though this thing comes down to numbers people care about numbers Serena gets to 25, that's the end of it. Like there will be a small, small contingent of people who will try and make that argument. Mm-hmm. But for many, it's already done with. And when she gets to 25, th- this will be just water under the bridge. Patrick had a stinging retort to Margaret Court. So Margaret Court said, if she's good enough to do it, good on her. Which, like, fuck you. Obviously, <laughs> she's good enough to do it. And Patrick was like, we're really not concerned with Margaret Court's record. It's We're concerned with the professional slam record, which is Steffi Graf's 22. It's been passed. Like, bad uh, enough that we have that. to sit through these Australian Open matches and see her bitter-ass face making these bitter-ass faces. Did you see her face when Serena won? Like, could she even... Could she be paid to smile? Oh my god. She's just sour. It's such a triggering moment for me whenever she appears on my screen. Because Margaret Court is an ordained minister who advocates against the equality of gay people in Australia. Oh yeah. I mean advocates. This is a reason for a lot of the venom yeah, that's spewed this is out where it's because from. she is horrid. Yes. It's not just that she has these opposing viewpoints. She advocates. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, she's a toxic, toxic person. So I understand that Tennis Australia basically has to feature her. She is the most decorated female tennis player ever, as far as titles go. Grand Slam titles. It's not like they can leave her out. But I do feel that the tennis establishment around the world really doesn't like her that much. The The U.S. commentators barely ever talk about her. Well, Chrissy does. Right. And so far as telling you how many times she beat her. Yes. But the Evert Billie Jean King Navratilova contingent, who in many ways are the ambassadors of women's tennis in the English speaking world, they're not putting Margaret Court on a pedestal. They're really not. And I I think you can get the sense, even if you're not a super serious tennis watcher, that there's a level of dislike. Or at least downplaying what yeah. she did. Because even before I became a with-it tennis fan, a knowledgeable tennis fan, outside of just turning on Grand Slams and watching a few matches, I was always a little bit curious as to why Margaret Court was just kind of kept at bay. Mm-hmm. Like They'd casually mention, oh yeah, she has 24 Grand Slams. I'm like, but that's a lot. That must be like right. the most. Like, <laughs> why, why don't people talk about her the way they talk about other people? And then you go and you do your research and like, oh, got, got it. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Serena has 23. She's back at number one. She's ended 
Kerber's 20-week reign at number one. And this is going to be something that's... <laughs> this is going to be a back and forth all year long. As people were making jokes about when Serena won the title, saying stuff like, you know, Kerber just went and added five tournaments to her schedule. <laughs> <laughs> like, Kerber will have a lot of points to defend in spots, but also mm. a lot of opportunities to to make up points where Serena won't be playing. Yeah, the opportunities are in the spring. Venus is playing St. Petersburg right now, fine. But Serena, neither Serena nor Venus are going to the Middle East. Neither of them is playing Doha nor Dubai, mm-hmm. whereas Kerber is playing both, and the week before those two tournaments. And so she's going to have chances. And this, isn't, this ain't going to be no like consecutive streak at number one type deal for Serena this time around. Patrick said as much that this is not their concern. They're trying to extend her career. They're shooting for majors. They're reducing the schedule. Not as, not as a tight a schedule as last year, but the previous year she played, I think 11 tournaments. So they're going to be doing fewer than 11. So between eight and 11. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, Serena, all she has to do is win all four slams. That gives her 8,000 oh, points. That's all? She keeps defending them and set that bar. You're like, Easy. Angie, get to 8,001. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Travel across the globe no for those 8,001 points. <laughs> Just a quick note on the other standouts from the women's draw, the second week of the women's draw. Joanna Conta lost to Serena in the quarterfinals, a match that so many, including myself, thought was going to be a trouble match, mm. or at least one that pushed Serena quite a bit. She lost one match on the year, won a tournament, came in playing blitzing tennis. Serena handled her easily. Yeah, which was a shock to me because Serena's serve was not good against Streetsova. It was like okay against Kanta, but still the scoreline was like no sweat. Mirjana Lucic Baroni, outside of Venus, the story of the tournament on the woman's side. 34 years old, makes it all the way to the semifinals. The second semifinal of her career, but the first since 1999. <laughs> it had been 18 years. And it had also been 18 years since she last played Serena in their head-to-head. Mm-hmm. Serena came into that semifinal with a 2-0 head-to-head lead, but they hadn't played in damn near two they decades. They played each other in 1998, which was Serena's first full year on tour. Lucic won a lot of fans this tournament. It was really emotional watching her. She's just incredible. She's gone from leaving the game because she literally could not afford to play professional tennis. And now she's in the semifinals of a Grand Slam and dumped one of the hottest players on tour out in the quarterfinals, Pliskova, who was a pick for a lot of people to win the tournament. And she also beat Radvanska. Yeah. And the story of her struggles with her father, the abuse, the theft, the stealing of her money. She took... About she took seven years off the tour before she made her comeback, mm. and like six years or so into her second career, she has this big moment. Onto the men's final, where Federer beat Nadal in a five-set match. A lot of folks were saying, "Oh my God, it's a classic! It's a great match." It was a good match for four sets, <laughs> a great fifth set, mm. a heartbreaking fifth set for us. <laughs> uh, but it, it, for me, for my money, it wasn't a classic. No, I think the occasion was a lot bigger than the actual match. For much of the first couple sets, it seemed like the two of them were, especially Rafa, getting a feel of what it was like to play each other again. Yeah, because it's been quite a while. And in a Grand Slam final. And in that first set, Rafa looked sluggish. Part of it, I imagine, was coming off of that five-hour semifinal against Dimitrov. And part of it was Roger coming into this match with a totally different game plan. We saw like maybe five sliced backhands the entire match from Federer. Mm. He was flattening out the backhand at every turn. And the net effect of that was that he was giving Rafa far less time than he's accustomed to from the baseline. Yeah, the thing is, Federer's backhand is supposed to break down throughout the match. Like, this is the classic play against Federer. Nadal's very high bouncing forehand will eventually lead Federer to make errors on his backhand. And so what is designed to be forehand to backhand, forehand to backhand, forehand to backhand, resulting in that breakdown, 
at times just felt like batting practice over and over again. Mm -hmm. Because while Federer's backhand was a real weapon in this match, he was taking it very early on both the forehand and the backhand. It looked even like a little slappy at times, but uh, he was taking a page out of Andre Agassi's book. And each time Federer looked like he was threatening to run away with the match. Rafa found a way to break early in the next set and keep him at bay. Mm -hmm. Coupled with Federer making some inexplicable errors at inopportune times. Because the shanks were definitely there. And in the fifth set, I thought that was going to get the better of him in the first few games. And then, man, he just pulled it together and Rafa did not. Federer played brilliant tennis at the back end of that match. And when it was 3-2 Rafa serving with the break up 3-2 in the fifth set, and John McEnroe says, oh, it's going to be so much harder for Federer because he has to break twice to win this match, Mm. and Rafa doesn't have to break at all, he just has to hold his serve, that's when I knew the match was over. Right. (laughs) Something within me, the pessimist in me, just felt like that was the kiss of death. And it turned out to be. Rafa was up 3-1 in that fifth set and lost five in a row to lose the match. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was a stupid comment because Nadal's serve was far more vulnerable. He'd been under pressure the entire match. I think there were 20 break chances, and Federer kept failing to capitalize on a lot of them. But the point is, when you allow that many breakpoint chances, your serve is more vulnerable, right? Federer is someone who, in a fifth set, I want to be serving for my life. We saw it in Wimbledon against Andy Roddick. When Andy Roddick got broken, there's no chance Federer is going to serve it out. Like, that is all but guaranteed. But even then, Rafa had his chances in this fifth set mm. with Federer serving, and he didn't get it done. And a lot of that had to do with some nervy play, but also some steely stuff from Federer. Yeah. Now, they both had pretty incredible runs to the final, despite... Djokovic and Murray being taken out by other people. It's not like this was gifted to them. No. I mean, they beat basically everybody else who was left. (laughs) You know, Federer went through Berdic, Nishikori, and Warenka to get to the final. Rafa went through Zverev in five sets, a match in previous years he probably would have lost, gave some hope to this resurgence and comeback being legitimate. He goes on to beat Mofis in four sets. Beats Raonic, proving me wrong in the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. In that our was preview, your only prediction. That was my only prediction. I felt that if the two of them got to that point, that Raonic should play to his seed, given how comfortable he's in Australia and his ascendancy in men's tennis, that that was a match he should have won. And on paper, on the supposed fast court in Australia, that's a match he should have won. Yeah. And Rafa won it in straight sets. And then... The other prediction I've made at the start of the year, that Dimitrov was going to be one of the breakout players on the ATP tour, he makes it to the semifinal and gives Rafa all he can handle in that semifinal. Mm. I sort of had this sinking feeling that since Dimitrov had played him so well and his game is so similar to Federer, just not as good, I thought that Rafa was in big trouble in the final. Why? Because I just told you. Because Dimitrov is Federer light. So up against the real thing, after playing five hours in the semifinals, I thought, well, Federer could really win this because... So you didn't see it as Dimitrov playing way above his level? Well, yeah, I did, but I still think Federer's level is higher. We didn't know what to expect from Federer in that final. It had been six months he took off tour without playing any competitive tennis. He played Hopman Cup and then went to Melbourne and then won the title. That's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. And the level that he showed in this tournament, even with the the blips in, in level from time to time, was still pretty great. And if he's able to stay healthy and work out some of those kinks and maintain that level, hello, like this could be a pretty big year for him. Right. This, to me, so I, I tweeted something about how I thought Nadal reaching the final was the shock of the tournament for me. Like, it was a bigger shock than Venus getting there. Because I just didn't... Honestly, I'm a Rafa fan, but I did not see him contending for a hardcourt major. On this hardcourt as well. Especially on this one. But we are also ruined 
by the Australian Open, by the 2012 final, by the 2014 mm. final. Like Rafa has not had happy moments in the last seven years right. in Australia. And yeah, I went through all different things in this match. After Rafa won the second set, I told you, I think Rafa's going to win this in four. He's going to win the next No, that's not sets. what you said. You said, yes. no, what you said was, this is going to be over in four. And I said, Federer winning in four? <laughs> I thought you were crazy. Uh-huh. And you're like, no, Rafa's going to win in four. I'm like, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah, so clearly I was wrong. I think you were just hoping for the best case scenario to get you back to bed. Yeah, I was... As quickly as possible. I was really tired. Big picture, though, this was a phenomenal result for Rafa. And if he's able to play like this and serve like this on a hard court at the start of the year and get this final under his belt, build his confidence, this sets him up perfectly for the clay court season. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is a better result than he could have hoped for. Bringing on Moya, the training he did in the offseason shows that Rafa is really committed to contending at every tournament that he goes to, but I have to wonder if maybe he even he was pleasantly surprised that he reached the final. That doesn't take the sting away from not winning that final, but his performance here was very, very encouraging to fans and probably to his team. Rafa is back up to number six in the world. He and Federer are number one and two in the race to London. <laughs> right. Well, whatever that means at this point. Federer is number one. Uh, Rafa number two. Similarly, Serena and Venus are number one and two <laughs> in the race to Singapore. Federer is back in the top ten. And the the really depressing part about that is for David Goffin. Because right. <laughs> he's been on the cusp of making the top ten for a couple of years now. He's been stuck at eleven on multiple occasions. And he was provisionally number ten. All he needed was for Federer to lose that final and mm. he would have finally cracked the top ten. There it went, snuffed out from under him, yet again. <laughs> After he so decidedly told Dominic Team to have a seat, and just really swept through him in that match. And then Grigor swept him aside. Right. Do you want to say anything about the uh, medical timeout, or are we above that? We're not above it. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Here's the thing. The medical timeout that Federer took in the fifth set, at the start of the fifth set of the final didn't hinder Nadal at all. Mm. That didn't affect the result because Nadal broke right away to open the fifth set. He was up 3-1, right? But it is curious to me that all of a sudden, this is something that Fed is deploying. And it's especially curious after his comments after the semifinal when he did the same thing at the same time against Vavrinka. Mm. And he described it in terms where it was more as a mental break than a physical break. Like he said, yes, I had been having problems with my quad or whatever, needed some attention, but more than anything, it, you know, sometimes you just need to talk to somebody to put your mind at <laughs> ease or whatever. And it's not something I'd yeah. done in the past, but it's something I figured I'd try and it's within the rules, so why not? And then lo and behold, in the final, you lose the fourth set and you go do the same thing. It's like, this is totally out of character for mm -hmm. Federer. Like the, the holier than thou above it all, that he's projected his entire career, this just flew completely in the face of that. Oh my god, remember remember when he wouldn't even hit drop shots because uh -huh. he thought that was cheap? And we know that he does that now. <laughs> and quite well. <laughs> like, maybe he's just decided that he's going to take every possible advantage he can, can have at his right. disposal. And truth be told, more power to him, because it's within the rules. But it's just like, eh. Well... As you told me the other day, without the context of those comments, the medical timeout in the final would have wouldn't have looked strange at all. I mean, he's because we knew he had been having problems with that injury. He's thirty five. He's right. coming off six months because of injury. It makes sense that you would need to get some attention. You are human after all. But why would you put yourself out there to be held to this level of scrutiny as being somewhat fraudulent? <laughs> yeah, it was weird. It's so bizarre to because me because he was. Almost rationalizing that I am not someone who ever takes medical time out, so I just kind of felt like doing it. I <laughs> I was surprised he was so yeah. honest. Again, that this is, is not a, this is not the reason why he he won the final or why Rafa lost. 
It's just something that was a bit curious to yeah. us. And it really doesn't take the shine off it for me. Like, I have always been a Rafa partisan, but I can be happy for a Fed in this in this moment. And I actually, I've been thinking this for a long time. You know how Pete Sampras won the 2002 US Open after probably two years in the wilderness, mm-hmm. being ranked in the teens or whatever. He was seated number 17, same right. as Federer at this tournament. People were talking about, oh my God, this is a sign. Turned out to be... <laughs> The thing is, like, I I wanted Federer to win again to show to people that he had a much better late career than Sampras. Because it's it's very clear that Federer after 30 is a completely different animal than Sampras after 30. Mm-hmm. Federer was reaching finals of Grand Slams. He was taking Novak Djokovic, one of the greats, to five sets in a Wimbledon final in, when was that, 2014 or 2013? Like, Federer is here contending for majors, and if Djokovic weren't around, he'd probably be winning a lot more. Yeah. So I just wanted him to prove that, hey, I not only had a better 20s than Sampras, I had a better 30s. I am a very uh, bitter person. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not, maybe it's not as easy for me to feel happy for him in the moment. It was, what, 7 a.m. at that point? Hadn't really slept. He won the title. I took my se- I took my ass to bed. You did, but I have I, to watch the presentation. I just that's just me. Look, it's 2017. I'll be able to find that presentation anytime I want. At that moment, I needed space. Like the tournament was over, I needed what I thought was 24 hours. Turned out to be 48 hours of distance from it <laughs> to to really wrap my head around it. I just could not in that moment watch Federer's celebration. And watch Rafa look dejected and sit there having to watch him give a, give a runner-up speech. I, I, I just couldn't in that mm. moment. And it was an epic speech. It was probably the longest runner-up speech I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Rafa was clearly disappointed. He, I mean, he was very charming during the speech, but before he was just kind of standing there and could not be bothered to smile and act gracious. But when it came to be his time on stage, he showed, you know, what a class act he has always been. Do you know, I, I haven't said this to you yet, but something that came to mind watching that final was like, oh my God, if Federer loses this in five and he starts weeping like he did in 2009, <laughs> I got this idea where I would do a split screen of him in 2009 weeping, 2017 weeping, and saying, wow, Federer hasn't aged a bit. Oh my god, that is so rude. <laughs> and that's probably why Rafa lost, because right. I put that negativity into the universe mm-hmm. and it came back tenfold Because Rafa would never even think like that. <laughs> that was the height of my bad-mindedness and bitterness and fed-hating self, 2009. I, I, I lived for that trophy <laughs> presentation. <laughs> At the time, I felt like, how dare you make this about you? Yeah, that's what yeah. I felt too. Like, why does Rafa have to be consoling your ass right now? Mm. Like, haven't you won enough? Right. <laughs> Did anybody miss Novak and Andy in the business end of this tournament? I certainly didn't. Hmm. Here's the thing. And I know you don't mean that to be bitchy, but... We needed a break. We needed yeah, something different in is, men's tennis. The thing is, like... These two guys, Rafa and Roger, are the superstars of men's tennis, even when they're considered to be over the hill. Like, they're the ones who bring the eyeballs to TV. They make the money. My point in asking that is men's tennis needed something fresh. We'd gotten to a point where it felt just redundant with Andy and Novak winning everything and being the top two at the end of everything. Fine, Stan is in there as well, right? Mm. But when you're able to have Rafa and Roger make their way through the back end of the tournament, even not necessarily winning the final, but just being there in the in the crunch of the second week, the matchups are so much more entertaining. The the stakes are higher for both of them. There are different narratives. It's it's just a a different feel that we haven't had in so long. It's funny that you said tennis needs something fresh because they are actually something very old yeah 
They just haven't been here playing together recently. But as much as we talk about the quality of tennis and matchups and all these things, like so much of it is about the stories. A lot of people don't like Federer and Nadal matches because they don't think they're exciting. But listen, like the story is just compelling. And it's compelling to people outside of tennis. And it gets people to pay attention to tennis. And it's compelling because of the regard that they each have for each other as well. Right. In spite of, there's that one little shady moment when, after Rafa was taking long all match, in the midst of the fifth set, Federer's now trying to get the umpire's attention, right? I was like, girl, simmer down now. You too? Like, let's not go down this road. Because if there's one player who has a leg to stand on with this, it's Federer because probably nobody plays faster than him. Right? Mm. But you don't get to then make it an issue in the back end of the fifth set when you haven't said anything. You've been so deferential and respectful all match. And then now when all the cards are on the table, if you want to say your true colors are shining through or like your nerves or what have you is getting the better of you, like that's not a good look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just hoping he wasn't going to piss me off so I couldn't be happy for him. Because when Stan won the final against Rafa... He really pissed me off, mm-hmm. and I really could not... That took us a while to get off, get oh, off from yeah. that ledge. Because, you know, he was bitching to the umpire. He was even trying to whip up the crowd to get pissed about Rafa's uh, timeout. And clearly it was a legitimate injury because Rafa was on his way to winning that final. I don't care what you want to say. <laughs> and so now the rest of the season is set up so great. Rafa and Clay fed at Wimbledon, potentially... How do Novak and Andy weave themselves <laughs> back into this and yeah. rest momentum from the two of them? Dominic team. Del Potro is going to be back. Mm-hmm. I don't... You Dimitrov, know, like, again, I'm really wanting to see this different Dimitrov continue to get better. Mm-hmm. Because he, for sure, looks like a different player. That said, fuck you, Danny Valverdu. Because how you carried on in that coach's box, in that semifinal, not cool. Just low-class behavior. Like, no wonder Andy Murray just destroys any player you work with. Like, pointing to his watch, trying to get the chair umpire's attention. Like, this is not your job. No. You sit there in the coach's box, and you shut your mouth, and you don't say anything, and you watch the match. That's since, it. Since when are coaches allowed to communicate directly with the chair? Like, just low-class. My final word on the time violation thing is... You need a shot clock if you're going to enforce the time. That's it. That's it. That's the bottom line because so many of these matches, yes, Rafa is taking longer than everybody else, but pretty much everybody else is taking more than 20 seconds. If 20 seconds in a Grand Slam is the cutoff period, you can't be penalizing one person because they're further outside the line. Right. You know, like you need to have consistency and transparency and you can't be having people on Twitter at home with their own stopwatch and then causing a big uproar like oh my god he's averaging so and so right now like this should be plain as day easy to enforce if you want it to enforce put a countdown this cannot this cannot be a subjective issue it just cannot that's crazy to me (laughs) just a small note on one of my tweets that kind of blew up they were showing a little vignette about the williams sisters during the women's final and having all these players talking about them. And Roger said, I'm just so impressed Venus and Serena are still playing. And I was like, bitch, how old do you think you is? <laughs> like, you are just as decrepit. Like, right. yes, Serena and Venus have been pro players and at the top longer than you were, right? Like, they've but been around... No, they much. have. No, they have been. They've been winning longer than he has. Yeah. But he went pro in 99. Yeah, but he wasn't winning until 2003... Like, Venus won her first in 2003 in 1999. They've had a higher profile in tennis longer than Federer. Fine. Mm. Yes. But them making the final is just as surprising as you making the final right now. <laughs> Venus, at the very least, you know? Mm. But it, it just brought out this, this side of Federer, this unassuming cockiness and just superiority. It just reminded me of this effortless unawareness that Federer yeah. <laughs> has, you know? Obliviousness. Yeah. I had a couple of people come for me, like, trying to explain it to me seriously. Like, well, this is probably what he meant. Like, I'm I'm taking the piss here. Like, I'm... Yeah. You mean you had a couple of well-actuallys? <laughs> I had a couple of those this tournament. <laughs> if, I mean, 
I guess I should have put the crying tears of laughter emoji in the tweet mm. to make yeah. it clear. At a certain point, if you're involved on Twitter, tennis Twitter, whatever, you just have to turn a blind eye to the fucker that you see. <laughs> right? It's just like not worth your your state of well-being and mental health. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it's very rewarding and a very positive experience. So that's that's how I feel, you know? Bethany Maddox-Sands and Lucy Shavasheva, they won the doubles title. They've now won four, I think, doubles titles together out of nine events they've played. That's pretty good. Still, Bethany Maddox has yet to answer any of the questions surrounding her quote-unquote doping situation. Oh, do you expect her to? Well, the the scrutiny is not going away now. She's a number one doubles player, and it started with Ben Rothenberg writing that piece at the back end of last year, and now we're seeing other tennis journalists Mm -hmm. pick up the story and press her. She's going to have to answer it at some point. This is something to keep an eye on. Continent and Peers won the men's doubles title, and uh, I was uh, pleased for John Peers because... He was kind of left behind when Jamie Murray decided right. to split with him at the end of 2015. And then Jamie Murray went on to have a great year last year, become world, world number one, win big titles. And so he starts 2017 now with a Grand Slam title. They've both been successful since the split. The one thing I want to finish on this episode is this whole business of people policing Serena for not thanking Alexis in her victory speech. And by people, I mean damn near the entirety of the ESPN tennis crew and Pam Shriver, who had a serious case of FOMO, fear of missing out back home in California because she tweeted about it. And it's just like, this dude is new. He's new to the scene. He hasn't been there for the, however many other, he may have been there for 22 in the, in the background. Very new. Like she won at least 2021 of them without him. Right. Mm. So like, let him enjoy getting free access to her player box for an entire two weeks and Venus's player box because he got his money's worth (laughs) this fortnight. (laughs) He did a great job performing the role of fiance. First husband of the WTA. He was screaming his support for the sister. He gave us many different looks. He gave us athletic wear. He gave us semi-formal. He He gave us tech genius. He gave us formal wear. He gave us the whole... The spectrum of menswear <laughs> was on display from Alexis Ohanian at right. this tournament. He comported himself well, and he, I guess, can make Isha laugh. Which he was is a, always sitting beside yeah, Isha. Which is a big plus in my book, because Isha seems amazing. Bottom line is, this is the Serena show. And she's told us before, never from man. Right? <laughs> when that whole CNN thing went on about how Patrick Moratiglou has saved her, or rescued her, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she had that tweet that came out shortly after and people drew drew the connection between the two of course it was a bible verse but is that what is never for men is that a jamaican thing no it was a bible verse oh but the i'm showing my ignorance here we extrapolated it as the feminists that we are (laughs) (laughs) and that we wanted it to mean that you know she's an independent woman who's done most of this by herself and her own genius and know that this man is here she don't need to be like thanking him and whatever like she can thank him in private and that can be between the two of them we don't need to be then calling her out for not doing it publicly because we have these ideas about how a woman should be deferential to her men like fuck that also she's private and she doesn't want to live her relationship in the public eye like this is already more i think that's probably the number one reason yeah this is already more public than we ever expected from serena yeah so pam you can take your pearls and clutch them (laughs) <laughs> because you are so out of line. Pam, that is reusable. <laughs> so is this Australian Open going to ruin us for Grand Slams in the future? Uh, if Rafa wins the French Open, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, they call this the Happy Slam for a reason. This was a utterly enjoyable two weeks. I it's think the I'm most watched... tennis you've ever watched. Yeah. I have lost so much sleep. Some of these matches, especially Venus's matches, gave me such stress, but it was all worth it. The last two sets of that Coco match and her celebration after winning that match will live with me till I die. Mm. I think we've given all we can <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to this I'm tournament dead. in uh, 
on our couch watching the matches and on air recording. Like this is this is all we've got. Thank you, Australian Open, for dragging us away from the utter shit tornado that is my country right mm-hmm. now. We needed the distraction. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. The the show, the body serve is at the body serve. I'm Jonathan. My Twitter handle is at SportsCribeCA. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are currently accepting iTunes reviews. We'll accept as many as we can get, preferably five stars. Thank you very much. (laughs) Till next time.